Jump right in, Nehemiah 2, starting at verse 1. This is where Nehemiah gives us a very brief but important introduction that helps set the scene uh, for what follows here. Look at verse 1. It says this, in the month of Nisan, which is not um, a special month of car sales, That joke is the entire catchy introduction, so I hope you enjoyed it. In the month of Nisan, which is actually just the first month of the new year. Um, so in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, because it was probably during the new year feasts that went on, uh, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now we know from the last verse in chapter 1 that Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king which means that he is a, a trusted official who helps keep the king alive, frankly. Uh, so that's why Nehemiah um, is bringing the wine to him. He's the cup bearer. So Nehemiah is telling us here that this is about four to five months after he had received uh, the news about the state of things in the home city of Jerusalem uh, and the walls being in ruins. And when he mentions that it was the first month and that he was taking wine to the king, he's not saying for the record that he's getting the king all happy and liquored up before he goes to make a request of him. That's not what's going on. What he's saying to us is that he's approaching him in the time when Persian kings granted favors to their family and political allies as a way of sort of keeping favor, as a way of flaunting wealth. It was something that they did that time of the year at the New Year Feast. So that was one of the many ways that kings sort of kept and flaunted their power. So Nehemiah is no dummy here at the beginning. He knows exactly what he's doing. And we know from chapter one that he spent a good four to five months uh, fasting and praying, waiting for the right opportunity. And he's decided now is the time to pull the trigger to ask the king for the help that he needs to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So it's the New Year the king is enjoying his wine. He's in a giving mood because he's trying to impress his family and friends. Um, but it was not remotely a slam dunk request for Nehemiah. Because as we're about to see, he's going to push way beyond the normal cupbearer king relationship. Meaning this, and this is the key spiritual lesson here for us today. Meaning that Nehemiah acted courageously. Because he trusted that God already had a plan throughout this whole thing. Nehemiah's actions, his courage to move forward in faith was because he trusted that God had actual plans that he was supposed to be stepping into. Look at how this plays out. Pick it up. Next phrase, verse 1. It says, now I had not been sad in his presence, which is a weird way to start. Um, he approaches the king during these New Year feasts, and he starts the story by telling us that previously he had not been sad in his presence presence, meaning in the king's court. He tells us that he'd never been uh, sort of emotionally down or morose or even sickly in the king's presence because, frankly, that's just something you didn't do in front of the king. To show any sign of sadness in the presence of the king was a big-time no-no. Now, think about it. We even do this naturally uh, with people who aren't kings. If you've met, ever, ever met somebody who is uh, really pretty powerful uh, or well-known on a national level, you don't just walk up to them with sort of a morose or grim attitude. Uh, you're deferential. You're happy to see them. Uh, you know, it's this, this cool moment, and 
in which you're likely to blurt out something totally ridiculous. Like I did a Rich Mullins twice in the 90s. Anybody remember Rich Mullins? Big fan of Rich Mullins? Yes. Uh. Walk up to Rich Mullins and I have no idea what I said, but I remember feeling both times like, I, what, I, yeah. So we do that even with people who aren't kings. So even more than that, with a king here, everyone around you is always happy because that's how you act around a king. Think about it. People who bring bad news to a king will often die. Yes. This is why we say don't shoot the messenger because they would actually shoot the messenger. So this is a moment where everybody's happy when they approach the king. This is why the king notices here, verse two, that something's going on with Nehemiah. He says this, he said to me, king said to Nehemiah, why is your face sad? seeing you are not sick. This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Something must be seriously wrong here. So then Nehemiah says, it's kind of an aside, a parenthetical aside to us. He says, I was very much afraid. He's afraid because uh, in that moment, he knows he's about to go way beyond normal protocol. He's going to insert himself where he doesn't belong in the place of, of, of a close friend or a political ally. I mean, think about it. Sure, he's a He's a cupbearer to the king, um, he's well-trusted, but he wasn't Persian, he wasn't royalty, and cupbearers don't speak to the king unless spoken to. And to ask something like he was about to was not only super risky, but he was about to do it with the most powerful person on the entire planet at the time. So in this moment, at this point, Nehemiah is trusting God because it's a big moment. He has to trust that God's got some sort of good plan for him in order for him to go to the king with this request. So, keep reading verse three. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Common way to address kings. Long live the king. And then he says this, pretty boldly really, why should not my face be sad when the city, and then he lays it on kind of thick here, the place of my, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Now, not only is Nehemiah um, nervous because he's about to go way beyond normal protocol to make a pretty massive request, but also because, and this is the part I haven't even told you yet, it was the king who had initially stopped the work of rebuilding the temple and the walls. We know this from, from Ezra chapter four. So Nehemiah's really pushing it at this point. And there's no doubt that the king knows the situation that Nehemiah is talking about. So the king says to him, look at verse four. He says, what are you requesting? Like, what are you really asking for here? This is kind of like when the husband walks up to the wife and says, long live the queen. And, uh, and, and she says, so, so what do you really want here? It's kind of like that. Sort of the same thing. Um, so long live the queen. Uh, what are you requesting? And so at that moment, I prayed, this is what Nehemiah says, I prayed to the God of heaven. Lord, don't fail me now. It's a big moment. He knows this is it right here. I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, what I'm asking is that you send me to Judah, to the homeland, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And not only is this a massive request out of normal protocol, but this also could be perceived as a, a little bit treasonous or even disloyal. Because think about it. 
Nehemiah is the cupbearer. He's asking to, to leave his post, to go elsewhere. So there's a lot going on here in this big moment. The king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? If it's not too long and you return to your post to serve me as cupbearer, I'm game, the king says. So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, verse 7. Now he starts to, to press quite a bit here. Look at what he asks for. If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river. He's looking for protection. Beyond the river is the place beyond the Euphrates uh, into what we now think of as the land of the Jews along the Mediterranean there. And he knew that he would have to pass through uh, some places that weren't exactly um, keen on Nehemiah going back to rebuild the walls. So he says, if it please the king, let letters be given me with the king's authority to the governors of the province beyond the river so they know that what's, what he's about to do is uh, under the king's authority that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. So note here that Nehemiah already sees opposition coming. Uh, verse eight, also give me a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and if that's not enough, and for the wall of the city, and if that's not enough, and for the house that I shall occupy, and while we're at it, can you pay off my student loans? <laughs> so Nehemiah asks for everything here. And then it says this, the king granted me what I asked, and here's why. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah's prayers had been answered in courageously asking the king not only to let him go, but to essentially pay for the rebuilding of the walls with the king's authority and with the king's resources. Think about what's about to happen here. The Persians were in charge of the world empire at the time. The Jews are under their authority. They had actually been the ones that declared that the rebuilding efforts stop. And here is Nehemiah, not only asking for permission to rebuild the wall, and I feel a joke coming on, but he's going to get the Persians to pay for it. You're welcome. Month, month of Nisan, Persians pay for it. Killing it. So, here's Nehemiah, empowered by the king's authority, setting off for Jerusalem. But as we already hinted, as he already asked for some authority for protection, he knows he's going to face opposition, and he does before he even gets there. Look at this, verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen for protection. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, when we see those uh, words in Nehemiah, we should go, boo, because they're the bad guys. When Sanballat and Tobiah heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So these guys, Sanballat and Tobiah, they show up a number of times in Nehemiah, starting right here. And they represent the ongoing opposition that Nehemiah was going to continue to face as he worked to rebuild the walls. These were uh, basically the governors of the area surrounding um, Jerusalem and Judah, and they were feeling politically threatened by Nehemiah's power here, uh, the authority that he has and the resources that he has uh, from the king. So when you come across them in, in your reading, you should say, boo, because they're the bad guys here. So Nehemiah can already see 
that there's going to be opposition before he even gets to Jerusalem. So when he gets there, instead of just jumping right in, he pauses, he takes some time, he assesses the situation and begins to continue uh, to, to, to mentally draw out plans and, and strategize. Here, He takes some time to assess the mood of the city and to survey the damage. Look at verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days just chilling to get a feel for the mood of the people and the city before he even goes in to assess things. And this is where he does that, verse 12. Then I arose at night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. He's probably riding a donkey. So it's just a donkey and a few other men with him. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, which is, yes, what it's called. It's basically the city dump. I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate, the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass because there's too much destruction and rubble. So he has to circle back. He doesn't make it all the way around. I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, turned back, entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And then he says this, verse 16. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. So nobody other than Nehemiah and a few companions had any idea about the plans that were emerging here. Now I want us to look back through this passage. I want us to, to note three places where God shows up. Three places where God shows up uh, by name. And as we look at these three places, it'll help uh, shape for us a lesson that I think is helpful for us today. Look at 2, verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? And then it says, So I prayed to the God of heaven. This is that big moment where he knows he's about to ask the king for way more than he has any business asking for. A moment of, of trust in God's plans. So at the exact point of needing the courage to move forward in faith that God had plans, Nehemiah asks God for courage. Now look at verse uh, 8. The king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Meaning after being granted everything that he needed to carry out God's plans, Nehemiah recognized God's provision. And then look at verse 12. And I told no one what God had put into my heart. I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Meaning when it was time to strategize for, out the, for, for the carry, actual carrying out of the plans, Nehemiah remembers this was God's vision in the first place that he put into him. Now think through these three things again here. Nehemiah approaches the king with courage because he trusts that God has plans. And then he recognized God's provision because it's clear that God is carrying out God's plans. And then he plans his next move, bearing in mind that he is being called to continue to carry out God's plans. It is Nehemiah's ongoing awareness and recognition of the primacy of God's plans 
that gave him the courage, that helped him see the provision, and that motivated his ongoing strategy. I want to say that again. It is Nehemiah's ongoing awareness and recognition of the primacy of God's plans that gave him the courage, that helped him see the provision, and that motivated his ongoing strategy. You see, friends, drawing up plans for our lives, for our marriages, for our careers, for our kids, for this church, drawing up plans is really much more, frankly, for the follower of Jesus about uncovering God's plans for us than it is us drawing up our own plans for us. Just think about this in generic terms, in general terms. When you look back on your life and all these places where you've schemed and you've drawn up plans and you're sure this is the goal and you've, you've oriented all of your, your time and your effort and your resources, uh, your relationships uh, toward that end of, of your plans, um, when you look back at how well those may or may not have worked, it's the times when we see that we were in charge of our plans, that things go awry. You see, God has good plans for us. And our lives move forward. Marriages are healthy. Families are fruitful. This church and the kingdom advances when God's the builder. When God's the builder and we are going through our lives working to uncover his plans more than draw up our own. We've titled this series, Rise and Be Built. Uh, We've put that in the passive to remind us uh, that we are being built by God because he has plans for his people that are better than our plans for ourselves. Let me say it frankly. I think our plans for ourselves end up in far less joy than being the means God uses to advance his kingdom. The kind, of, the kind of hurt and pain and destruction that we see in our lives when we're trying to build our own personal kingdoms this side of heaven is evidence that God's got to be the one that builds us, that gives us vision, that moves us forward, that creates uh, marriages that are healthy, that families that are fruitful, churches that are focused on the advance of God's kingdom, Rise and be built is a way to say, friends, what God's called us to do when nobody else wants to say yes to his agenda. What God's called us to do is to be built into who he wants us to be. It's all over the scriptures, this kind of language about being built. Psalm 127 that we talked about earlier, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor build it in vain. 1 Corinthians 3 says that we are God's building and that God's spirit that lives in us is what's making us into a temple. 1 Peter 2.5 calls us living stones that are being built up as a spiritual house. 
And think about this. It is the trust that God himself has better plans to build us than we do for ourselves that is the foundation for our forward movement. At a real basic level, it's the trust that God himself has better plans to build us than we do for ourselves that is the foundation for our forward movement. We move forward because we trust that God is building us. When Nehemiah acted in courage and with gratitude and carefully, it was because he trusted that God had better plans for him than he did for himself. His forward movement was founded on the trust that God had good plans. Is your forward movement in your life, for your family, for your parenting, for your career, for your involvement in this church, in the community, at your job, is your forward movement in life based on the trust that God has better plans for you than you do for you? Think about Jesus. When Jesus was faced day by day, moment by moment, with the temptation to turn away from the Father's will, he decided to move forward in faith because he believed, he knew that God the Father had good plans, even when it meant the kind of suffering he would have to endure in order for us to have forever relationship with him. Even when those plans meant facing uh, all of the weight of the punishment for sin that we deserved, Jesus stayed the course. Even when those plans meant accepting the scorn and the shame of the cross that we deserve because of our sin, Jesus stayed the course. You can stay the course too. You can stay the course too when you go through life with the recognition that God himself has good plans for you because he's the one building you. He's the one whose spirit is making you into who he wants you to be. That's how you move forward. Trusting that God has good plans. Let's pray, friends. Very simply, Lord, uh, we confess that we have made our own plans the lords of our lives. That our personal here and now earthly visions have been what directed us. Lord, continue to teach us through your word through the lives of those who've gone before like Nehemiah, through the faithfulness of the body of Christ around us. Continue to teach us, Lord, that we can trust that what you have for us is much better, even in the here and now, than we could have for ourselves. Lord, teach us in those places where we've not made you, Lord, uh, to see, Father, you've called us to submit to your will for us, to say yes to your purposes, that we can move forward in courage, seeing your provision, because we trust that you have good plans for us. Father, we thank you for Jesus, and that he was a model for us not just for us to live by, um, 
but that he showed us the lengths to which you would go because you had good plans for us. We thank you, Lord, for his faithfulness. That all along the way, in those moments of temptation, where he could have said yes uh, to worldly fame, uh, to the treasures uh, that this earth offers, that he said no, and he said yes to your will for him, because, Lord, he trusted that you had good plans for us. We love you for that amazing truth, Lord. We're grateful that you've made provision for us fully that we could not for ourselves. Help us to live out of that truth. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.